look at the subject of God's love and uh, reading from Jeremiah chapter 31. And I will go ahead and read this passage and then we'll have a word of prayer. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, loving kindness I have drawn thee. Lord, we thank you for another day that you have given to us, that you've given to us to worship, that you've given to us to gather together. We thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us. We thank you for all the gifts that you've given to us by your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer and our surety, as we've just sung about, uh, who is our uh, intercessor, as we have just sung about. We thank you, Father, for the substitute who came and lived perfectly so that our record might show that we have kept all the law of God, but who also died in our place to pay for all the sins that we commit in this flesh. And Father, we're so grateful for this great salvation that Christ has procured, secured, delivered unto his people, and we thank you, Father, for the opportunity to now stand and declare the greatness of this salvation, to be able to proclaim the freedom, the liberty, to proclaim the love of God shown in Christ and his work on the cross. And Lord, I just pray today that those that are gathered here today, that they might be given hearing ears, seeing eyes, heart of flesh to be able to hear your word and to uh, love the gospel. Father, Lord, we pray that if there's any here today that is your child, that, if you, that you have yet to grant repentance, that you just might give them that today, that they might repent from their false thinking of self-righteousness and that they might see Christ as their only hope. They might profess him before men and that they might uh, be baptized they might be added to the church, Father. They might join in the labors of the gospel as we preach and proclaim and to worship together. Father, we thank you for all that the uh, all that you have done for us in this church. We thank you for this time together. We pray, Lord, if there's more here in this town, we ask, Lord, that you would just bring them uh, our way to be able to meet and to join together in fellowship and in edification. Again, we ask, Lord, that you might help me now as I uh, bring forth this message. Lord, I pray that these verses that we have before us today uh, might be uh, spoken of and declared in truth. Lord, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Sorry about that. All right, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3. We began looking at this last week, and we're looking at the subject of God's love. And as I mentioned last week, this is a subject that is uh, often taught incorrectly in modern-day churches. It's also a subject in which uh, a lot of attention is given in modern churches, but yet if the doctrine behind it is not correct, then we have a false understanding of God's love, and that's what we've kind of seen over the years 
is that God's love has been taught incorrectly, and therefore uh, people have this wrong notion of what God's love is all about. Uh, we have, uh, in our day and age, we have signs and billboards and tracks, commercials on TV, radio shows, everything that is going out, bumper stickers, hats, wristbands, all kinds of stuff that you can buy and, and wear and all these things that always has on it, God loves you. Uh, Jesus loves you. Uh, we have the song, Jesus loves you, this I know. Uh, we have all the uh, billboards that talks about, you know, God loving everyone. And uh, so everyone has this notion that God is love, and that's true. The Bible says that. We read that verse last week. God is love. And they, they determine that because God is love, then that means that everyone that God has created... God must love them because he is love. God can't do anything but love them because he is love. In and of himself, he's love. That's where love comes from. That's where love is derived, is from God. We love because God first loved, right? That's what the Bible says. But you've got to remember, as we looked at last week, we love God because God first loved us. That love... Uh, that we have is because, and it's not a perfect love. We know that. We know that we don't love God perfectly. We know we don't love the brethren perfectly. Any love that we do show to them is an imperfect love. Uh, however, to even have any love for God or any love for the brethren only comes because God has first given us that. But as far as God is concerned... While he tells us to love our enemies, how God tells us to love one another, um, that's not necessarily true of God. And people say, well, how, why would God tell us to love our enemies and he not love his? You know, why would God not follow the same law that we are? Well, that's because the law is given to us. The precepts are given to us. Uh, the admonishments are given to us, and they're for our good, they're for our purpose, the, the, the purpose that God has for us, and it's not a law for him. The law is not for God, the law is for people. The law was given to manifest sin in the lives of people, so that they might see their need for Christ. And so, God is not bound by the law that he gives men. But I want us to look at a few things today because um, this question of does God love everybody? Uh, it, does the Bible teach that God loves everybody? And um, is that something that we should be proclaiming? Is that part of the gospel? Is that what we ought to have on our t-shirts and bumper stickers? Uh, or is that another gospel that is being uh, pitched by all these uh, uh, modern day uh, religionists uh, that's out there. Last week we looked, and, and we'll, we'll hopefully we'll see this through the scriptures today, and we'll let the scriptures direct our understanding, right? We don't go to the scriptures with our preconceived notions. We don't go to the scriptures with our presu uh, uh, presuppositions and try to find scriptures that back what we believe. 
we read the scriptures and let the scriptures dictate to us what is true. It reveals what is true. And we as God's people, if we have been born from above and been given faith, we trust what God's word says. We believe God's word and not what we think. We don't believe what the world says. We don't believe what the religions of the world say. Even the false Christian religion of the world. We don't believe those things because of its popularity or because of its widespread acceptance. We believe what God's word tells us. We, we always say around here, and it's a common phrase among especially Baptists, that uh, the Bible is our, only, uh, uh, is our only rule of faith and order. And we, we uh, pray that uh, the Lord will keep us uh, faithful to that word uh, in everything that we do and everything that we believe. So we're going to go to God's word to see what does God's word say about God's love. Is God's love to mankind universal? Does he have a universal love for all his people that he has created? Not talking about just the elect, but the non-elect. Does God show his love Towards them. Now, if you remember last week, we broke down this verse, and first of all, we've seen in the first phrase, it says here, The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, here's the phrase, I have loved thee. And we looked at a few verses, we began in Malachi, and we've seen that God has mentioned that he has loved us, and one of the ways that we asked, how is it that God loves us? How do we know that God loves us? God displays or, or God tells us the reason that he loves us or how do we know that he loves us is because he has elected us. We've seen in Malachi where he elected uh, Jacob and not Esau. He used those two boys who came from the same womb, from the same father, Father Abraham, Father Isaac, who came from Father Abraham. Uh, but anyway, we see that that these two boys came from the same womb, and that neither one of these boys had done anything good or bad before they were born. They had not even been born yet. God made a, a choice to love one and to hate the other. So we've seen that in Malachi chapter 1. We've seen that in Romans chapter 9. We've seen in John 14 and John 16 and 1 John 14 and 1 John 3, We've seen in all those passages where the Bible speaks that God loves his people. God loves the brethren. God loves the beloved. God loves the elect. God loves his people. And so we see that God loves us. It's a true and genuine love. But we've seen that it is not a ooey-gooey love. It's not this romantic type love. It's not this subjective love, and when I say subjective, meaning that God loves us sometimes and doesn't love us at other times, or didn't love us at first and now starts loving us. It's not a subjective love because we've seen here in our passage in Jeremiah 31, the next phrase was, with an everlasting love. God loves us, if God loves us, he loves us with an everlasting love. That means there wasn't a beginning and there wasn't an end. God has loved us from eternity through eternity. God loves us with an everlasting love. So we seen last week, and we looked at a few passages of Scripture, that God, even though 
we are sinners, even though we have rebelled against God and by nature our children of wrath never was under wrath. We never was under God's wrath. We never was appointed to God's wrath because God has loved us with an everlasting love. That we were never uh, imputed the sin that we or Adam has committed. Now our nature truly has it embedded in it. It truly has it because we sin every day. We are sinners by nature, just like our father Adam. But just like the second Adam, our father in the spirit, Christ Jesus, we are without sin. We are perfect. We are holy. We are righteous. We are just. We have within us the spirit of God. And the Bible says that spirit cannot sin. The Bible says it is created in righteousness and true holiness. That part of us that was born from above, it wasn't born from Adam, it was born from above. It came from Christ Jesus. He is our spiritual seed. That is perfect and holy. It doesn't sin. However, that which came from Adam, this flesh that we continue to have, this warfare that we continue to experience <clears throat> is the sin that is within our flesh. And all it can do is sin. However, in the judgment and justice of God, he imputed that sin that would be for all of his people that they would ever commit. He imputed every bit of those sins onto Christ Jesus as our surety in the everlasting covenant of God. Before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, God made a covenant that Christ would be a substitute, would be a surety. Now, that, those are two different words, by the way, brethren. A surety and a substitute are two different things. A surety is one who stands for another or makes payment for another. A substitute is someone who actually takes the place of another person. So Christ, as our surety, stood before God, and he said, I come representing them. I come in their place. I come as their guarantee. I, I'm guaranteeing for them that payment will be made. We call today, uh, we uh, are well aware of what's called a bail bondsman. A bail bondsman is a surety. Uh, he is a person who goes on behalf of the one who committed the crime before the judge, and he posts bail. He makes, uh, he gives payment so that that person can go free and not be held in jail until the court proceedings. And so that person becomes the surety, guaranteeing that uh, this person will show up for court whenever it's time to come to court. And he puts up the money for that person. Okay, And then if that person, for some reason, jumps bail and doesn't come, that bail bondsman sends agents out to go get that person, bring them to make sure that they do what he promised the court they would do. Okay, Well, just like that, Jesus has gone before the court of God and has said, I will be their surety. We read back in the Old Testament, where Joseph's brother, uh, whenever it was time to go back to Joseph, remember Joseph said, I want you to go back to your father and I want you to bring your 
Brother Benjamin, and I want you to bring him with you uh, whenever you come back. Remember, uh, Isaac didn't want uh, Benjamin, or excuse me, Jacob didn't want Benjamin to go. Uh, he didn't want Benjamin to go. He loved Benjamin. And he'd already lost Joseph. And he thought he did. And he didn't want Benjamin to go. And so he was hesitant about that. But yet his brother said, I will be a surety for him. I will go and take the boy with me. And if I do not return with that boy, then it will be on my hand. I will be the one who is to blame. That's a surety. That's a picture of Jesus Christ. Christ stood before God as our surety and said, as you have given them to me, they are now mine. I'm responsible for them. And I will go in their stead. And I will make sure that they will come back to you. And the only way that they could come back to you is by redemption. The only way that they could come back is for all the penalty, for all the sin that they are going to commit to be paid for. And so Jesus, as our surety, stood that. But, on the other hand, as the substitute, Jesus just didn't guarantee that we would come. He actually went as the substitute so that the guarantee was in itself Him. He was the guarantee. He was the money that was put up. His blood was the actual payment that He gave to God. That's why the Bible says that he stood as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God, before the foundation of the world, viewed Christ Jesus as that payment, that blood, even though he had not come in time, shed that blood, had not been crucified, had not died, been buried, and raised back to life. Although all that had not yet taken place, the judge viewed him as our surety and him going as our substitute as justice being fulfilled. And we know that Jesus saying that he would go do it was going to fulfill it because God cannot lie. If Jesus said, I will be to them this person and I will return them back to you, then there is no way that that's not going to happen because God cannot lie. And so Jesus as our surety, as our substitute came and he did everything that was required of God's justice so that we could be that people. But brethren, listen, <clears throat> the imputation of that sin was placed upon Christ before the foundation of the world. The imputation of his righteousness was placed upon us before the foundation of the world if we are his. And so we see here, God has loved us with an everlasting love. That's why, and I want you to turn, but keep, keep your hands there in Jeremiah, but I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and I know that we go there all the time. People probably always say, boy, I'll tell you what, you just kind of use that verse for everything. Well, it's because it does cover a lot of what the Bible teaches about salvation and Christ, his representation of us. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, look with me. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Brethren, justification is a spiritual blessing. And he has blessed us with that before the foundation of the world in heavenly places in Christ. See, the blessing came to us because of our union with Christ. The fact that God gave us to Christ, Christ received us as his people, 
as the surety, as our substitute, as our high priest, Christ being our representative, he came before God and he is the one in whom all blessings are bestowed upon and because of our union with him, then we are blessed. And so we have all these blessings because of our union. See, these blessings doesn't go out to all mankind and they're there if you just choose them. No, the blessings were actually given to God's people because of a union that truly, vitally existed before the foundation of the world. It was a true union. It wasn't a union that took place whenever you came to your senses and believed upon Jesus Christ. That's not when you were united to Christ. You were united to Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world in heavenly places. That's when you were united in Christ Jesus. That's whenever you were put into Him. You were put into Him there, not here. Not in time, not after belief. It says, according as He hath chosen us. See, that's how I know that this blessing and this union took place before the foundation of the world is because it's according to election. Election happened before the foundation of the world. According as he has chosen us in him. Election took place by taking a people and writing their names down and not writing other people's names down. The ones he wrote down, he gave and put into Christ Jesus. He gave them to him and united them with him. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. So see, he had chosen us in him. He hath um, blessed us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, brethren, if that be true, and I believe it is because the Bible says that's true, then let's take away this human reason that says it is because we believed or received or came or, uh, or decided or filled out a card or was baptized or joined a church or raised your hand, or bowed your head with your eyes closed, or with your head up and your eyes open. It doesn't matter. Nothing that you did caused this to happen because this happened before God had ever created anything before the foundation of the world. This is when this happened. God chose, God united, and God blessed before anything ever happened. Now look what he says there. According as he hath chosen us in before the foundation of the world. Why? Why did God do it that way instead of waiting until now? Waiting until after the cross. Waiting until the cross. Waiting until after the cross. Waiting until you believed. Why did God do that? Well, right here. The reason he did that is so that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. How long have we been blameless before God in His love? Before the foundation of the world. How is that true? Because God has united us with Christ and in uniting us with Christ as our surety, as our substitute, as our high priest, as our representative, we are united with Him. Therefore, all spiritual blessings are ours. Declared upon us. For the foundation of the world. And one of those declarations is not guilty. Well, how can you be not guilty when you hadn't done anything? See, that's the whole thing. 
How can you be alive before you've been given life? Yet the Bible says that we've been given eternal life, and that life was in Christ Jesus. We already had eternal life, and it was in Christ Jesus. We were already people that God loved and knew and put in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. See, we were in Him in spirit or in seed form. We were in Him seminally in spirit form, in life. Just like we've talked about before, you have a seed. That's not a, that's not a fruit tree, is it? No, but that fruit tree's in there. As soon as I plant that seed and it comes forth, what's coming forth? It's coming forth a tree that's going to produce fruit. And it's going to produce fruit according to the life that was in it. And the life that was in it was what? If it was an apple tree, it's an apple. And it's going to bear forth fruit. And it's going to bear forth an apple. Christ, who is eternal life, bears forth seed of eternal life. His life is our life. The life that we have is not our own life. It is not the life that was given to us in our inception, conception, when God breathed physical life into us. We're talking about spiritual life. We're talking about a life that doesn't come from this world. We're talking about a life that comes from God. And brethren, that life was true. It's a vital life. It's a real life. It's not make-believe. It's not just a proposition that this is going to be from future days. This isn't something God just determined and decree, although He did. This is something that really actually existed. We had a vital relationship, a vital life in Christ Jesus. God determined every single spiritual life that would ever come out of that original seed, God determined that before the foundation of the world. And each one of those lives that was in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world had a name. And God wrote that name. Now, I don't know if God actually physically wrote it down in a book. He gives us that imagery so that we might know that there is a distinction between His people and those who are not His people. There's a distinction that tells us that God, according to election, chose one and not the other. That God chose to redeem these people and not these people. That God chose to give life to these people and not these people. God has made that distinction. God has made that uh, division between Jacob and Esau. Those two boys are the pictures, the symbols, the types, the foreshadows of the spiritual reality. God has given us life. Now, we've seen that the reason that God did that is what? So that we would be holy and without blame before Him in love. <clears throat> God made this determination... God made this judgment, not just the declaration, but the judgment. These people will be without sin because of Christ. Now, with that being true, and some will even probably question whether or not that statement that I've made is true or not. But let me ask, whenever the Bible says, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity how can that be true if God ever imputed iniquity 
to his people, then there is nobody that fits that category. How can the Scriptures say that he hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, nor hath he seen perverseness in Israel? How can he say that? Well, the reason he can say that is because, as the Bible says, for that the Lord our God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. The reason that God doesn't see iniquity in us, the reason that God doesn't see perverseness in us, even though it's there, the reason He doesn't see that is because in love He placed us in Christ, and being in Christ Jesus, that's the Lord, that's the King, the shout of the king is among them. What is the king shouting? I will be their surety. I will go on their behalf. And I will return, redeeming them to ourselves. That's what the king is shouting. The king is shouting, my blood has covered it all. That's what the king is shouting. The king is shouting, it is finished. Redeemed. Forgiven. Saved. That's what the king is shouting. Mine. That's what the king shouts. And if the king is shouting that, as all knows, the king is the sovereign, right? Nobody can question what the king says. If the king says, this is mine, and I've set my love upon it, and I have placed redemption in the hands of this man, and he has done it, then they are mine. Nobody can say anything about it. That's why the Bible says, who can lay any charge against God's elect? Now, if that was not true, if God waited until the cross, or God waited until we believed, then there could be charge laid to God's elect. The Bible says that nobody can lay any charge against God's elect. There's never been a time at any point, whether before I was born or before creation, there was never a time that any of God's elect could ever be charged with sin. Why can they not be charged? Remember, brethren, these are legal terms. These are legal terms, court terms. We watch court movies all the time. You hear these types of things all the time in court movies. How can we not be legally charged with sin as God's elect? Because we've been acquitted of those. We've been found not guilty of those sins. We can't be charged with those sins because we've been found not guilty of those sins. Well, how did we become not guilty? Because we surely did it. Well, we was found not guilty because someone substituted in our place and everything that we owe because of our guiltiness he took in our place all the payment that we were to pay for our sins Jesus our substitute came and paid that and so that's how we can before God be blameless in love at all times there never has been a time that God has seen us in our sin Christ has been our surety now, I know there's people that disagree with that. There's people that don't believe that. There's people that are adamantly opposed against that. But, brethren, that's the offense of the gospel. Whenever you say that, 
That takes salvation. That takes your destiny. That takes your commitments and professions of faith and your uh, salvation completely and totally out of your hands. Your free will, your free choice has nothing to do with it. If God does it that way, you don't have any handhold on what salvation you get or don't get. It's God's choice. That's the offense of the cross. That's the offense of the gospel. The offense of the gospel is that God has made the choice, not you. That's the offense. Now with that being said, we saw that he has an everlasting love. He has loved his people. That love has been an everlasting love, and that everlasting love is based on not only God's pleasure, God's purpose, but it's also based upon his justice. He can love us. How can God love the wicked? How can God love those who are sinful? Well, he's done it because he's justified us in Christ Jesus. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to his good pleasure of his will. That's why he did it. That's how he did it. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. The way that we are accepted before God is because we have been placed in the beloved who is Christ. And if Christ is beloved, we are beloved. We're loved because Christ is loved. Why? Because we're his seed. We're his children. Everything that he and his righteousness is has been placed upon us. Therefore we are loved. Therefore we are accepted by God in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches, riches of his grace. The riches of his grace, well, when, did that grace, when was that grace given to us? Whenever we chose him? Whenever we made a decision? Whenever we walked an aisle? Whenever we told the preacher we wanted to be saved? Whenever we said, I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Is that when that grace was given to us? No. Was that grace given to us whenever Jesus was nailed to the tree? No. When was that grace given to us? 2 Timothy chapter 2. Or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Another familiar verse we always go to. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. In the mouth of two or three witnesses the thing is established, brother. We've seen that now in more than one or two witnesses. There's been more than one or two testimonies in Scripture that has said, now wait a minute, what about believing? You mean we don't have to believe? We don't have to trust Christ? We don't have to do all this? Brother, I've never said anything on the contrary. That's just not what makes it happen. That's not what saved you. That's not what causes God to save you. That's not where your spiritual life began. I'm not saying that we don't believe. Everyone who has been born of God will believe. Everyone who has been elected of God, saved by Christ, 
will be given faith to trust in Christ. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That word come there is directly connected and used interchangeably by Jesus in that very same discourse for belief. All that the Father giveth me shall believe on me, and all that believe on me I will in no wise cast out. So, God loves us with an everlasting love. And as we finished up last week, we saw that, back to our passage here, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And we looked at the loving kindness of God, how that he loved us and he showed his kindness towards us by doing what? By sending Christ to die for us. How did God display his love? Okay, we know that God loves us because he elects us. But how does God manifest that love or display that love to us? By sending his son to die for us. Remember, we read those verses. We can kind of quickly recap those in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, the Bible says, But God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, we read, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and hath made us to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in verses 16, verse 16, now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, who hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, establish you in every good uh, word and work. So God has loved us with an everlasting love there, an everlasting consolation. And then in 1 John chapter 4, we read... This recap is necessary, brother, to get to what we're looking at today. 1 John chapter 4, and then in verses 8 through 10 we read, He hath he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. So here is the love of God manifested that God sent His only begotten Son. That's how God manifested that love to us by sending His Son for us in our place, in our stead, as our substitute. Now, look at that word therefore. And here's why I want to stress this and why I've stressed this recap. I started this off with, with bringing to question the fact, does God love everybody? Is the bumper sticker true? God loves you. God loves everyone. Jesus loves everyone. Jesus loves you. Can you honestly look to every person and say to any person to their face, Jesus loves you? 
The Bible tells me so. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus loves the beloved. The Bible tells us that Jesus loves his elect. The Bible tells us that Jesus loves those that he died for. But is that true of everybody? That's the question. And I know that's, to some, offensive. To others, it may even be mysterious. Like, wait a minute, I've never even heard this before. I've never heard anybody question the fact that, does God love everybody? But look at what the scripture here says. He says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. And we just seen that God shows this or manifests this love that is based upon eternal things. And he manifests or shows those eternal things by the sending of his son to die. Christ dying for those people is the showing of God's love. That God loves us is shown by Christ dying for us. So that word therefore is extremely important because it says this, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, because I've loved you, because I have put you in Christ, because I have declared you not guilty, because I've imputed your sins to Christ and His righteousness to you, because I have placed you before me uh, blameless in love through union with Christ Jesus, therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn thee. The result, that's what the therefore means. Therefore, in result of the love, the everlasting love, I have drawn you, and I've drawn you through loving kindness. What was the loving kindness? Christ dying. That was the loving kindness that was shown to us is Christ dying for us. Not a gooey-gooey love where he came and said, Oh, I love you. The loving kindness was him dying. No greater love hath any man than for him to lay down his life for his friend. Christ showed his love for us by dying for us. And then God here says, Therefore, with that loving kindness, I have drawn thee. So what does that tell me? What are some things that we can glean out of this? Well, one thing we can glean out of this is that the preaching of the gospel and the telling of this loving kindness draws people to God. The very fact that we preach this gospel draws people to Christ. But it also says this, that everyone for whom God loves and shows this loving kindness and enacted that loving kindness will be drawn. Everyone that God loves and everyone who God showed that love by dying for will be drawn. Therefore, in loving kindness I have drawn thee. Why is that? Because of the first part. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. And because I have loved you with an everlasting love, in loving kindness I draw you. What does that word draw mean? Well, in the Hebrew here, this word draw means to draw out. It means to draw out 
or to develop. It means to develop something. Now, if we had a crowd, like here, we had a crowd of people, okay? And we've got, you know, all these here. And if I would divide you out and I'd say, all right, you three over here, you three over here, and then I come over to you three and I say, here's you a candy bar, here's you a candy bar, and here's you a candy bar. And then to these over here I say, no candy bar for you. So what have I done? I have drawn you out of the crowd and I have favored you by giving you a candy bar. And I'm not over here. I've drawn you out. You were of the same crowd, but I drew you out of that crowd and I have blessed you with something that I had already purchased, something that I already intended to give you, something that was already yours by my favor, by my grace, by my mercy. I give it to you. You didn't do nothing to earn it. You didn't. These people were just as, you know, the same as you. But yet I give it to you. Why? Well, because I chose to. Well, why did you choose that? Because I determined to give you candy bar and not them candy bar. Now, if people can do that, and we know people that do that all the time, if people can do that, how much more right does God have to do that? You say, well, God can't do that because God is love. And he, that wouldn't be fair. God has to be fair. Show me one verse in the scripture that says God is fair. Can't find it anywhere, brother. I've searched. I've looked. There's nowhere in the Bible that says God is fair. It says God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. God is love. But he's also wrath. He's also mercy. He's also hatred. Now, that being said, this word draw out, or, or excuse me, drawn, the Hebrew means to draw out, or to develop, to form, to fashion, to, to mold out. It's like a, the image is like a, a potter who takes this lump of clay, and out of that big giant lump of clay, he pulls off a piece and puts it on the pottery wheel, and he begins to turn that thing and begins to develop into whatever vessel he wants it to be. Now, does that have anything to do with the Bible? Well, absolutely. Doesn't the Bible say that he is the potter and we are the clay? Doesn't the Bible say that has not the potter out of the same lump have the right to make one a vessel of honor and one a vessel of dishonor? What if God willing to take one piece of clay Put it on there and turn that into a vessel of honor. Right there. And out of the same lump of clay, to take one, make it into a vessel of dishonor. You I will bless, you I will not bless. You will be for other purposes. Because the wrath of man, the reprobate, those non-elect, have a purpose also. God has purpose that in them they will serve the younger. The elder shall serve the younger. The Bible also says that the vessels of wrath are fitted for destruction so that God might show his power and his name 
to make his name known, to show forth his power. That's why Pharaoh was raised up the way that he was raised up. And that's why Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. And that's why Pharaoh was reprobated and not saved. It's so that God might show his power in him. And that his name might be proclaimed among the people because of what he did in Pharaoh. The vessel of dishonor being displayed for God's wrath, for God's justice. The vessel of honor for God's glory, of love and mercy and grace. Now brethren, I know this is not popular teaching. I know this isn't stuff that people like to hear. But we have to preach what the Bible displays of God. The testimony of God is there. Now, in the Greek, this word drawn means to drag. It isn't a wooing. See, a lot of people say, well, that word drawn there, it means to woo. We woo each God woos us by preaching, oh, come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You who are thirsty, come drink of the water of life. Come, all you who want to come. You know, whosoever will may come. And we woo people to God. But that's not what that word means. The word means to drag, to pull, to bring out by force. You say, well, you mean God causes us to be saved against our will? Absolutely he does. He absolutely does. But we'll read some more about that here in just a minute. Turn, if we would, to uh, Song of Solomon. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Not often we read out of this book of the Bible. <clears throat> Song of Solomon, look in chapter 1. <clears throat> verse 4. Remember, this is a book that Solomon, David's son, wrote. Solomon was given the greatest wisdom of any man by God. Didn't mean this, that Solomon was, uh, was perfect or righteous in and of himself. But God blessed him with wisdom. Solomon had a lot of faults and failures, just like his dad David had faults and failures. But look at what he says in verse 4. Same word here, by the way, in the Hebrew as what we just read in Jeremiah. It says, draw me, we will run after thee. See, if God draws, we will run after him. Now remember, God, who's God drawing? God's drawing the ones that he has loved with an everlasting love and shown loving kindness to by dying for them. Those are the ones that God is drawing. And those that he draws will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. <clears throat> we will be glad and rejoice in thee we will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love, uh, the upright love thee. 
<coughs> now here we see the result of drawing. The drawing does what? Draw me and I will run after thee. Did we come kicking and screaming against our will, not wanting to come? Absolutely not. When God, by His loving kindness, draws us, we come willingly. We run after Him. And He brings us into His chambers, and we are glad. And we rejoice. We don't come and say, I wish He would have done that. I can't believe that He did that. Nobody has ever done that. And I've never heard any preacher that's ever preached that. But yet a lot of people say, oh, you mean God just calls us and saves us with us, drags us kicking and screaming towards Him? No, He does something that we cannot do in and of ourselves. The Bible says that the leopard cannot change its spot. We cannot change who we are by nature. But God can change our heart. God can change us, and by giving us a new, new spirit, by giving us that man from above, that is fashioned in true holiness and righteousness can give us new desires to give us new passions to give us new love that we didn't have before I will take out of them the heart of stone and I will place in them a heart of flesh that's what the scriptures say now that he does without your choosing without your choice he does that apart from you. You have nothing. It's called irresistible grace. But yet when God does that beautiful, wonderful, loving thing to the person who would never, ever, 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 choose him, that is a gracious thing. Whenever he does that, then what do we do? We run after him. Do we come by our own free will? You can kind of say that. But the only reason that we come is because He drew us. And everyone He draws does come. It isn't left for He draws and then you have a choice. I, was, I heard growing up by one teacher that we used to listen to. I heard that... that that we are quickened, and that quickened is different than being born again. We are quickened, and then in that quickening, we are quickened so that we could hear, and then we have the option to choose Him or to not choose Him. And if we don't choose Him, then we're not born again. We won't be born again. We'll remain in our sins. We'll remain dead. Well, the word quickened means to make alive. And if you're quickened and you're made alive, then you're made alive spiritually because you're already alive physically. So if you're made alive, you're made alive spiritually. And if someone who is, is made alive spiritually, they're made alive spiritually through eternal life. That eternal life is eternal and you can't lose it. So now you've got people that are saying there's this in-between death and life and there's this little place that we come where we're partly alive but not fully alive. That's ridiculous. I've also heard it said that we are drawn and then God gives us the choice. And that's not true either. Everyone for whom God draws, we come. And we will remember thy love more than wine. We remember our, thy love. Well, what are we remembering? What are we remembering here today? His loving kindness. 
His love for us. How did God love us? By choosing us to be redeemed through the cross of Christ Jesus. We are remembering, we're gathered here today. We are in His chambers. And we are remembering His love. Whenever we baptize somebody in the water, not only is that that person's confession of faith, but that person also in their confession of faith is reminding us of Christ's love for us. Whenever we have the Lord's Supper and we take the wine and we take the bread and why we are so adamant that it is unleavened bread and actual wine because it pictures something in what Christ has done for us. Not to mention that's what Christ used to institute the Lord's Supper. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. But that's another message. We take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. In remembrance of him doing what? Showing his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. See, draw me, and we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers, and we will be glad and rejoice in thee. Who are we rejoicing in? The preacher who preached the message? Are we rejoicing in the witness who witnessed the gospel? Are we rejoicing in the guy who chose Jesus? No. Who are we rejoicing in? We're rejoicing in Christ. We're rejoicing in the one who did it. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. The only ones who love him are the upright. Well, who are the upright? Those who have been given the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness was given before the foundation of the world. While we are still sinners... We are considered upright. And we rejoice in Him. Look, if you would, with me at Psalm 110. Psalms 110, verse 3, it says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. So here we see something physical describing something spiritual. Thy people shall be willing. When will they be willing? In the day of thy power. When is thy power shown? Whenever he draws us. When will we be willing? Whenever God exerts his divine power over us and changes the that mind and, re, and gives us repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Whenever He changes our heart, whenever He gives us a new life, we will come after Him willingly. But see, who does it say? Thy people shall be made willing. Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power. Not, not before then. Thy people will be made willing, but they will be made willing in the day of thy power. Look now, if you would, over to James chapter 1. I'll have to hurry. James chapter 1. And look with me, if you would, at verse 18. 
It says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. That word begat there, it means to bring forth or to draw out. That's the word that we saw a while ago, that we have been drawn. It means to be drawn out, to bring forth, to make manifest, to show what was already there. Now a lot of people use that verse to show that that uh, we are uh, born again through the preaching of the gospel. And I don't believe that that's what that's talking about. I don't believe that the Bible teaches that it's, that we are born again through gospel preaching. Uh, that we are born again through the immediate work of the Holy Spirit is what I believe the Bible teaches. <clears throat> it's what the, what the testimony of Scripture says. That it is the divine power of God through the Spirit that quickens that we are not born by men preaching, okay? Uh, we can preach all day long and men cannot be saved. Uh, the power of God unto salvation, uh, they'll say, is the preaching of the gospel, but that's not what that's talking about there. We've talked about that before. But it says here, of his own will, begot he us, or brought us out with the word of truth. Well, what's the word of truth? Well, the word of what Christ has done, the testimony of Christ. The gospel of what Christ's loving kindness did on our behalf. Look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. It says, But after that the, that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy... He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now that word regeneration there is not speaking of, of quickening. It's not speaking of uh, it's not speaking of um, of uh, our conversion. Okay? That word regeneration there is speaking of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the resurrection that it, or the uh, Regeneration. I, for those who are listening to this and may kind of be puzzled by that, uh, you can go on Sermon Audio and you can look through my sermons and you'll see I've got a couple of messages that is entitled uh, Regeneration Does Not Mean uh, Being Born Again. Okay? So if you want to go check those out, you can go check those out. The word is only used two times in the scriptures and both times in context of Christ's uh, uh, work on the cross. And are united, being united in Him, in that. Okay, so <clears throat> go uh, listen to that if you want to know what, what I mean by that. But it says, "Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us." How did Christ save us? By His substitutionary death on our behalf. By His death, burial, and resurrection. His dying and His being brought back to life. Renewing of the Spirit of God in him, the renewing of the Holy Ghost, the washing of regeneration. Okay? The renewing of the Holy Ghost has nothing to do with us. We never had the Holy Ghost until it was first given to us. Okay? We didn't have the Holy Ghost and then we lost the Holy Ghost and now we got it back again. Okay? So it can't be talking about that. Okay? So. <clears throat> Look with me at John chapter 6 and verse 44. 
John chapter 6 and verse 44. Now we're going to get to the question, does God love everybody? But we got to make, we got to see. what does t- See, everybody wants everything just handed to them in a platter. We're so, today we're so uh, uh, used to having everything just given to us at a moment's notice. If we don't know something, what do we do? Go to Google. There it is. If we want to watch something, what do we do? Right there. It's on our phone. It's right there on our streaming services. We don't have to wait for anything. We don't have to do anything. We go to drive through. If we have to wait now two minutes in drive through, we get impatient. Now we'll just be going right through and getting our food. You mean I got to wait five minutes for a burger? You mean I got to wait? Now we even got pizza, hot and ready. You don't even have to wait on it. You just walk in, grab it out of a box, and take it home. See, we want convenience. Boom, boom, boom. And everyone wants to see. Wait a minute. You mean God doesn't love us? Chapter and verse. Well, wait a minute. You're going to have to put, up, put a little time in and study the Scriptures and see what is taught in Scriptures. John chapter 6, verse 44. Now remember, we just read that those that God loves everlasting and has shown His loving kindness, the death of Christ on their behalf, he will draw and they will come to him. That's what we just read. That's what we just seen in Jeremiah. That's what we just seen in Song of Solomon. Right? John chapter 6, verse 44. The scripture says, or excuse me, verse 37. Let's start there. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which has sent me, that all, every single one, which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. There it is. There's the surety saying, as the surety, God give them to me. And as the surety, I said, I will make sure everyone returns take care of And so he came down not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. Is there two different wills in God? Absolutely not. What is Christ saying? Christ is saying that God has determined to do this, and I've come down not to just be a willy-nilly carpenter, or to be something that everybody else thinks I... No, I've come down to do the will of God. That's the only will that there is to be done. It's God's will. I didn't come down to do some separate will. I came down to do God's will. God's will was this. Everyone that He has given me will come to me. And all that come to me, I will in no wise cast out because I came down and I'm going to give them eternal life and none shall perish and I will raise them up to the last day. That's what it says right here. And this is the Father's will which had sent me that all which He hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him that sent me that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life and I will raise Him up at the last day. Listen, that isn't an offer of salvation. That isn't, a, uh, that isn't a command. That is a declaration of what is true. God has given a people to Christ. Christ has come as their surety. In loving kindness, He died for them. And in that death, therefore, He draws them. Because of that death, He will draw, and everyone that He draws will come. Everyone that comes will rejoice and be glad. And they will love God. What does it say here? Look at verse 44. No man can come 
to me, except the Father which hath sent me, draw him. There's that word draw, that means drag. And I will raise him up at the last day. So no man can't come unless they're drawn. That isn't, no man can come, no man can come unless I draw him. No man. Sorry. I know you're wanting to come, but you can't come until I tell you you can. That's not happening. That's not what Jesus is even saying. He's saying, listen, no man can come. They don't have the ability because they have no spiritual desire, no spiritual life. They do not hear God's voice. They do not uh, feel that power of God that is drawing them to Him. They do not hear the message of the cross for them. They still think that they have something to provide for righteousness. They still have a hatred towards the God of this Bible, the gospel of this Bible. He says no man can come because they are not spiritually alive. They are not spiritually drawn. They are not spiritually given faith. No man can come except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus goes on to say in verse 60, uh, 65, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. So see, that coming is even given by the Father. Look at John chapter 12 and verse 32. The Scriptures say, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And there you go. Aha! There you go, preacher. Salvation, Jesus' death was for everyone. It was for everyone. Because it says right here, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men <coughs> to myself. Well, remember, and this is why I had to do the recap. This is why we had to read those verses about loving kindness again. This is why we had to read those verses in Song of Solomon again. Because we've seen that everyone that God draws comes to Him. Everyone that God draws will be raised up at the last day and be brought back to God. Everyone. Not one will be lost. So look at here, verse 32. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men. And that word men, by the way, isn't there in the Greek. It's supplied there by the translators to make the flow of the passage more understandable or more readable. He says, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all unto me. All who? All that the Father giveth me. That's one of the ones who... Isn't that what he just said? All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Why? Because only the ones who are given of my Father or drawn by my Father can come have the ability to come. Everybody else don't have the ability because they haven't been given the ability. In grace, they haven't been given the ability. So, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So Christ's death, was it for all men everywhere? No. It was all men that God had given to the Son. We call that particular redemption. We call that Limited atonement. I don't particularly care for that phrase, but that's what we call it. So the question is, is does God love everybody? Now someone's going to say, 
Well, preacher, I know for a fact that the Bible says that God is not a respecter of persons, so you got to be you're off on that. If Jesus says if he be lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself, he means every person. He died for every person. Well, brethren, there's a lot of verses I could go to that says that Jesus only died for his sheep, for his people. But let's look at a few scriptures, though, that has to do with that. Look at it in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10. And look at verse 34. Because this is where everybody gets the, the, the argument, God's not a respecter of persons. Therefore, election is not true. Therefore, particular redemption is not true. Christ only dying for some and not others because the Bible says that God is not a respecter of persons. Well, let's look at the context of where this is found. Now, here is Peter and Cornelius coming together. If you remember, Cornelius was a Gentile. Peter was a Jew. The mentality of the religious Jews was that only Israelites, only Jews, were going to be saved. No hope for the Gentile. No salvation for the Gentile. Only the Jews, only Israel. That's why they thought the Messiah's going to come, going to wipe out all our Gentile enemies, we're going to be set up on thrones, we're going to rule the nations with our Messiah. That was their mentality. They looked at it on a physical level instead of the spiritual teaching of it all. Now, remember, Jews and Gentiles didn't coexist. Salvation wasn't for the Gentile, only for the Jew. That was the mentality. But whenever Christ came, he taught that salvation wasn't just for the Jew, but was also for the Gentile. Matter of fact, even in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about the inclusion of the Gentiles into salvation. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there were Gentiles who were saved in the Old Testament. But here we see Peter, and I'm going to start reading in verse 32. It says, Send therefore to Joppa and call him. This is God speaking to Cornelius. The Gentile. He says, Send therefore to Joppa and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak unto thee. Immediately therefore I sent to thee, this is Cornelius telling Peter the story of what God told him and what he did. Okay, so this is Cornelius talking here. Okay? Send, uh, immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God to tell us. Okay. Now here Peter begins to speak. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. So there's where the phrase comes from. There's where the people say, God isn't a respecter of persons, but you say that he dies for some and not others. That's being a respecter of persons. You're saying that God elected some and not others. That's a respecter of persons. But the context of that verse is in light of these other verses that come before. Peter the Jew being sent to Cornelius the Gentile 
to tell them the gospel that salvation is for the Jew and for the Gentile. Look at verse 35. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead, to give all to him, give all the prophets witness that the, uh, through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remissions of sin. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized? <coughs> Which we have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed them to tarry certain days. <clears throat> Brethren, the context of God being a respecter of persons is in the fact that God didn't keep salvation just among the Jews, but that God has people that he has saved out of every nation. You say, well, preacher, are you really stretching that a bit? Well, turn with me to Revelation 5. Revelation 5. Now, I've told you guys before that in God's Word, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, and that every word counts in God's Word. It's all important. God doesn't just put filler stuff in there. <clears throat> look with me at Revelation chapter 5. Look at verse 9. It says, And they sung a new song, saying, Now this is the praise around the throne of God. They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Who was the one who opened the book and opened the seals? Anybody know? Who was the one that was worthy to open the book? The lamb that was slain, Jesus. So Jesus is the one who was worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. It says, For thou was slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Now, look what it says here. Out of every nation. He didn't say he redeemed every nation or every one in all nations. He said, you redeemed us out of every nation. Out of. There's that phrase again. To be drawn out of. To be brought out of. To bring forth from. It's, it's throughout the scriptures, brethren. It's a thing that God is doing out of one lump, 
bringing some out for a specific purpose. We were just like the rest of Adam. We were dead in trespasses and sin. We were by nature children of wrath. We are natural. We are sinful. We cannot do any good. We cannot do any righteousness. We cannot do... Out of the one lump, God has brought these out and brought forth them as vessels of honor, as vessels of glory. They're made of the same material as the others. They are just like the others. The only difference is, is God has glorified them and brought them out of every nation. By thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people, and nation, and has made us unto God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So God has chosen out of every nation. That goes back to what Peter was saying. God is not a respecter of persons. Salvation is not just for the Jew. God has included the Gentile out of every, what does it say there? Every kindred, every tongue, every people, every nation, God has brought forth people. Not everyone, but his people out of every nation. Look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Galatians 3 and verse 28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus, and if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So here we see that God being a respecter of persons has nothing to do with God's ability to elect one and not the other. It has nothing to do with whether Christ can die for one and not the other. It has everything to do with the fact that God has chosen people from every people group. Of every nation, kindred, tongue, tribe. Okay? Every place will be represented. Every people group will be represented among the elect of God. There will not be any people group left out. Okay? Look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. It says, where there is, uh, verse 10, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of God, uh, after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Doesn't mean that he's in everybody. It just means that he's in all kinds of people, in every kindred. Circumcision, uncircumcision, Jew, Gentile. He doesn't just do it among the rich, for the rich, for the poor, for the Scythian, for the barbarian, the Scythian, the barbarian. We could probably say for the uh, for the uh, uh, for the banker or for the ditch digger. God doesn't have a respect over what country you're from, what nationality you're from, what position of life that you're in, 
whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black, white, red, yellow, green, blue, orange, purple. He has no respecter of persons in that regard, but God, as the scriptures have clearly declared, God is a respecter of persons on who out of those people he chooses for salvation. You say, well, I don't know, Brother Mike, that uh, still doesn't make me believe that God only loves some and not others, that he doesn't love everybody. I mean, I've always heard growing up in Sunday school that God loves everybody. I mean, God is love and he loves everybody. Well, turn with me to Psalms chapter 11. If I can show you in Scripture where it says that God hates people, then will you believe that? Only if you're given to believe it by God. Psalms chapter 11, look at verse 5. <clears throat> the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. Psalms. Let's go to Psalms chapter 5 and verse 5. Oh, no wonder. I'm in Proverbs. My bad. Let me get to Psalms 11. Back to Psalms 11 verse 5. trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. The wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. You mean God hates certain people? Well, that's what he says here. But who are the wicked? <clears throat> Remember, the Bible separates people into two categories. The righteous and the wicked. <clears throat> now, who's the Righteous. The Bible says there is none that is righteous. No, not one. Who are the righteous? Everyone to whom the righteousness of Christ has been imputed. They're righteous. It's not their own righteousness. It's the imputed righteousness. Well, who was the ones who was imputed with righteousness? The ones that God loved. Well, when did God impute that righteousness to them? Before the foundation of the world. That's why we went back and recapped. That's why we had to go through an hour and 20 minutes of what we've gone through to answer this question. See, it's not just a simple answer. We've got to see what does the Bible teach. See, right here it says, the wicked he hates. Look at Psalms 5.5. 5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. 
Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. God hates the workers of iniquity. And you say, well, wait a minute. Haven't we committed iniquity? Yes, we have. Well, then, doesn't God hate you? No, God doesn't. Well, how, why do you say that? It says right here, He hates all workers of iniquity. Yes, but remember, the Bible says that He has not seen perverseness in Israel, nor has He has seen, excuse me, He has not seen iniquity in Jacob, nor hath He seen perverseness in Israel. Who is Jacob in Israel? That is the types and foreshadows of God's elect. He's not seen the iniquity. Why has he not seen the iniquity? Because the shout of a king is among them. In loving kindness, Christ died for them. As the surety, he paid their purchase price. God does not see iniquity in him. All he sees is righteousness. To their legal account, again, just like a checkbook, in their account, it says not guilty. It says righteous. When God opens up the book, it says righteous beside my name. Why? Because I've done all these good works? No, because Christ died for me. It says righteous. So whenever God looks at the book of record, He doesn't see my sins. He sees righteous. But whenever he looks to the worker of iniquity who Christ didn't die for, what does he see? All the works of iniquity. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, he says there's going to be many on that day say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful works in your name? We cast out demons and devils. Didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And he said, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. See, they weren't the ones whose iniquity was covered. Theirs wasn't the ones whose iniquity was taken away. Those weren't the ones whose iniquity was blotted out because righteousness was stamped over it. Their iniquity was removed because Christ died for them. And here we see God hates all workers of iniquity. That means all those for whom Christ did not die, God hates. But He loves the ones for whom Christ died. That's the reason Christ died for them. And God displayed that love through that loving kindness of Christ dying. And everyone for whom Christ died and was given to God, or given to Christ for Him to die for, the Bible says will be drawn by that loving kindness. That death will be effectual. That means that death will effect the outcome of what it was meant to do. It was meant to give righteousness. It was meant to take away iniquity. It was meant to blot out sin. He shall save His people from their sin. He will justify the many, as Isaiah 53 says. We read it last week, but Malachi chapter 1, we read, How have you loved us? Did I not choose Jacob and not Esau? Romans chapter 9, we read, and this will be the last one, Romans chapter 9. 
Not as though God's word, not as though the word of God had taken none effect, verse 6. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So that means it isn't about being an Israelite or a Jew by nationality. It's about the spiritual aspect. Who is the spiritual Israel? Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac, who Isaac is, he's the children of promise. He's the child of promise. The child that was born miraculously to parents who was past the age of having children. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might that the purpose of God according to election might stand. We're going all the way back to the beginning now. I have loved thee. How have you loved me? By electing you. And the purpose of that election is what I'm going to show forth. I'm going to show forth the purpose of that election. And that is showing my glory in vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. I'm going to show forth my glory by saving you Loving you, saving you, redeeming you. You don't deserve it. You're out of that same lump. But I'm going to show that. But I'm also going to show my wrath upon the rest. Look what it says. <clears throat> it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, brethren, just a side note. You're going to hear Reformed Calvinist say, Well, that means that God loved Esau less. That God still has a love for all mankind, but he just has a less love for that. Can't find that anywhere in Scripture. The only way that God's love is portrayed as far as a redemptive thing is concerned is in the death of his son. And that death of his son is effectual. All that, that was given to Christ Christ died for and all that Christ died for will be drawn by God and they will come. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? There's, there it is. There's the question. <clears throat> God's not fair. That's what they're actually meaning when they say that. Well, that's not right of God to choose some and not the other. And it says, is there unrighteousness with God for choosing one and hating the other? God forbid. There's no unrighteousness in God. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Why can God have mercy on whom he will have mercy? Well, because he is the I am. I am that I am. I'm the sovereign God. I'm, I can do whatever I want to do because I am God. No one tells me what to do. I don't live by anyone's laws. I don't have to do anything. Everything that I do is right and just and holy and good. For he saith, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Just in the very phrase of that, brethren, does that not imply the fact that God can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and those who he don't want to have mercy on, he doesn't have mercy on, and no one can tell him you're wrong or unrighteous for doing that? That's the argument that Paul's making here. Is there unrighteousness with God? You're thinking there's unrighteousness with God because God does this for one and not for all. 
You're saying there's unrighteousness with God because He loves this one and doesn't love this one. You're saying there's unrighteousness with God because He gives salvation to these people and not to these people. That Jesus died for these people and not these people. That's unrighteousness of God to do. He would never do that. And Paul is saying, hello, there is no unrighteousness with God. Everything that God does is righteous. And if God wants to have mercy on whom He will have mercy and compassion on whom He will have compassion, no one can tell Him He's doing something wrong. No one can show that He's doing anything unrighteous. No one can bring forth any accusation towards God because God does not have counsel with anyone. He says, So then it is not of Him that willeth. See, that's what the argument is. See, you're saying that God has mercy on those who wills to come to Him. You think that's where salvation comes. That's what I used to preach. That's what I was taught all growing up. That Jesus has died for everyone, but you have to choose Him. You have to make a free choice to choose Him as your Lord and Savior, and you have to come, and you have to receive Him, and you have to believe on Him. And if you do those things then He will give you a new birth. He'll give you everlasting life. You'll be born again after that. See, so then it is not of Him that willeth. It's not of Him that willeth. Is that... Do you all understand that? Is that hard to understand? I mean, is that plain? What does it is not of Him that willeth mean? Anybody? It is not of Him that willeth. Is it any plainer than that? God having compassion and mercy on somebody has nothing to do with somebody willing it to be done. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It's God's choice, not your choice. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Why was Pharaoh reprobated and not chosen as the elect of God and perished without salvation? Because God didn't choose him to be saved. God didn't choose him as the elect. God chose him as a vessel of dishonor. Why? To show his power and make his name be known throughout all the earth. How many of us here have not heard the story of God raising up Pharaoh and Moses going to Pharaoh. How many have seen the movie Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? How many of us have seen any other version of the Ten Commandments? How many of us has heard the story of the children of Israel being brought out of Israel? I mean, being brought out of Egypt and Pharaoh chasing after them. God splitting the Red Sea and the children of Israel walked across. And whenever Pharaoh and his army started to come across, he closed the waters back, killed every one of them. How many of us have not heard the story of Moses and Aaron going before Pharaoh and showing all these things and God and him saying no and then God sending all these plagues on Egypt? We've all heard that story, haven't we? And we've seen how powerful God is. God killed the whole army of Pharaoh in just a few minutes with drowning them all. Put them all under. Killed them all. 
But he says the reason he raised them up for that purpose of hardening their hearts and making them hate the children of Israel is so that God's purpose will be completed. So that he would be glorified. So that his name might be declared throughout the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will he hardeneth. Just like with Pharaoh. He hardeneth Pharaoh. And he, that was his will to do. Nobody can stay his hand. You can't tell him that he's unrighteous for hardening Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh don't have a choice. Well, whenever Pharaoh gets in front of God, he's going to say, I couldn't help it. You made me this way. You, you made my heart hard. And you made me not obey you. And you made me for this very purpose. So why are you, why are you judging me and my sin? Look at verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? Why doth he yet find fault? Who hath resisted his will? See, listen, I've had people I love and care for have said that to me. Well, if that's the case, you stand before God and say, Hey, I couldn't help it. You made me this way. I can't help it. You put me in that position. I can't help it. You hardened my heart. You didn't give me salvation. You didn't elect me. You didn't choose me. You're saying, how can you find fault with me when it wasn't my fault you made me this way? It wasn't my fault my heart was hardened. It wasn't my fault that I did all those deeds. You caused that to happen because of the way that you made me, the way that you hardened me, and the purpose that you had. That's not me. That's you. The Bible here says, Who hath resisted his will? But look at verse 20. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me this way? See, whenever Pharaoh stood, stands before God, he's not going to say, Why did you make me this way? Why didn't you make me elect? Why did you make me this way? It's not right for you to judge me this way because I didn't have a choice. God is declaring, you can't say that. I will not entertain that. The judge of all the earth will do right, and whatever I do is right. And that's the God of the Bible. That's the love of God. The love of God is a distinguishing love. The God of love is a respecting love. It is an effectual love. The love of God is something that is not given to everyone. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to make to show his wrath and to make his power known? Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for or fitted to destruction. That's the purpose that they were made. They're fulfilling their purpose. Their purpose that God made the non elect is they are fitted to destruction. They are made for destruction. They never was made to be saved. They never was made to have life. They were never made to be vessels of honor. They were made for the purpose of showing forth God's power. Verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Why is he doing that? So that we, who are just like them, 
who are going to be standing on the right hand of God at the judgment seat of Christ when Christ is judging the living and the dead and He is judging them and He is telling these who are separated from the, uh, from the sheep, those who have been separated from the wheat and have been put on His left hand, and He says unto them, Depart from Me, you workers of iniquity. It is that these people who are just like them by nature sees what glorious grace I've received of God because I'm no different than these people are. My sin is as great as they are. And yet here I am, exalted in Christ Jesus. And there they go into everlasting destruction. Not one person from this group can come up and point a finger at them. Not one of them people over there can point a finger at them. The only thing that can be done is look at God and say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, for Thou hast opened up the books. You have opened up the seals and brought forth the purpose and the declaration of Almighty God. You have completed it all. No one can say he's wrong. Wherein has he loved us? Have I not loved you and not the other? Have I not shed my love upon you and in loving kindness sent my son to die for you? God is not a respecter of persons, even verse 24 says, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. He's not a respecter in the persons of out of which nation, which tribe, or tongue. But God surely is a respecter of persons on who He loves. God loves those that He is from all eternity elected. Alright, brethren, has anybody got a question or any comments? Anything? I know this is way long, but uh, didn't want to break it up into another message for next week. Alright. Well, let's bow and we'll have a dismissal prayer. Father, we are humbled this morning by the gracious election. Lord, we're so filled with awe at how God can love sinners, die for sinners, and not punish us for the sin that we commit. And Father, this love that has been given to us is such a great love. Father, Lord, we know that we don't deserve that love and that we, just like all the rest, deserve eternal fires of hell. And we know that you are just and you are holy and you are right. And Lord, we desire to worship you as you have revealed yourself in Scripture. Father, we're so thankful that you've given us grace in Christ Jesus. We're so thankful for the salvation that has been given to us because of our surety. Lord, we pray that your sheep will be drawn and come as you have promised they would. Father, we pray for the day that you return. And on that awful day of judgment, you will declare your righteousness before all men elect and non-elect. And there won't be one person that can object to what you have done, how you have acted, 
have you have purposed to who you are in essence and in action. Lord, we bow before your almighty throne, the sovereign of all things, creator of everything, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. All things consist because of you. All things exist before you because of you. Father, forgive us because we don't stop often enough and give praise to you for this glorious gospel, for this glorious mercy and grace. We so take it for granted. We so take it flippantly, Lord. But Father, we, whenever we hear these judgments that's going to befall the vessels fitted for destruction, how we ought to fall to our knees and give thanks and praise unto Christ Jesus, our Savior. God, I pray for these brethren that are here. I pray for these uh, that are not here, that have not confessed Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for their soul. I pray that they be yours. I pray that you have elected them unto glory. I pray, Lord, that you have given them Christ Jesus as a substitute and surety. And, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. Father, Lord, I pray that you just might be with us as we leave this place, that we might continue to proclaim the gospel and that you might keep this church as a beacon and a light here. Lord, I know sometimes it becomes discouraging because we're so few that people come and go. But, Lord, I pray that you would help keep us faithful to declare your word no matter how many we have here, no matter how small we become. You build your church as you see fit. And so we, Lord, are subservient to that. And we just pray that we might continue in the labors that you've given us to do faithfully as only you can do it through us. Once again, Lord, we are so grateful for Christ Jesus. And may he be honored and glorified in everything that we've done and said today. Lord, I pray that the things that I've spoken have been of truth from your word. And Lord, that you might convict and you might correct those things that are not. May these brethren be blessed and edified uh, for what they have heard today. May Christ be exalted in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.